Be born in 
then everything went chaos. Printer doesn't work. Dishwasher doesn't work. Uh, it's hot. Uh, anyway, I have to go through three weeks. Psalm chapters 9 and 10. Psalms chapters 9 and 10. These two psalms connect together by its content. And so I'd like to cover both of these chapters. And we just finished chapter 8. Spent a couple of times on that one. And so we're going to answer the question, at least the Bible answers the question, has God forsaken his people? And the second question will be answered is, does God ignore the workers of iniquity? So two questions will be answered from these two chapters. And so remember, David was a king and he also was a prophet. Therefore, when he wrote things under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote some prophecy. In other words, he predicted the future. And he didn't always, as the prophet, did not always notice uh, carefully or understand fully what they were writing down. Later on, we look back and we find out that they said some things that were, of course, uh, fulfilled from the New Testament. But uh, a lot of times the writers, and even David, may have written some things, um, truthfully, of course, but not quite to their full understanding. Psalm chapter 9, Psalm chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and, yes, verses 1 and 2. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praises to thy name, O thou most high. Look at verse number, uh, let's see, verse number 11. Sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. And so we have now in verse number 14, that I may show forth all thy praise and the gates of the daughters of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. Now these verses talk about sincere praise to the Lord. And there's a deeper meaning than just praising the Lord for something that David is talking about. But looking ahead in prophecy, he's praised most specifically for something that will happen. And we would say in the kingdom. Now, he, he has some sincere praise. Now, think of some examples in the Old Testament which people sincerely praised the Lord. And was seen, it seemed kind of unorthodox or kind of uh, exuberant. I think about in Exodus when Miriam sang a song. She... Uh, she played an instrument, and with dances, it says, Exodus 15, 20. In Psalm 30, verse 11, Thou hast turned my mornings into dancing. So you have these two examples about sincere praise. It is involved with singing, with some musical instrument, and also with this thing called dancing. Psalm 150, verse number 4, tells us, Praise Him with the timbrel and dance, with string instruments and organs. So you have a combination of gestures, action, and a musical instrument with singing. Now also, the most famous, I think, the most famous example of dance would be David, when the ark was returned to Israel after being gone for maybe 20 years, and he recovers it from the house of Abinadab, and the Philistines had taken it, and ever since it took the, uh, the, the ark of the covenant, all kinds of bad things happened to the Philistines. Uh, they get... Um, problems in the body, they have, uh, they took the, the Ark of the Covenant next to their god Dagon, and the next morning Dagon was, was knocked over on his face, and then afterwards uh, his hands were cut off, the palms were cut off from his hands, and he fell flat, so he fell off his rock, you would say, and so nothing would happen, and then he, they took the um, Ark of the Covenant away, and the next group of people that got him, they said, oh no, we're cursed if we do this, and so they had physical problems as well, and so finally, it returns to Israel. And David, in 2 Samuel 6, he rejoices that the ark is back 
And then he's dancing to express his exuberance and joy to God. Now, who was it that criticized him for dancing and praising the Lord? Who was it that caused, uh, we would say, a real stink or was very critical of David dancing and said, oh, you have made a, look at you. You're the king and you're dancing. How shameful of you. And she mocked David and David was real upset with her. Who was that woman? Do you remember? Starts in the M. Joseph. Who? Yes, one of the daughters of Saul. And so the Lord really chastised her. And from that day on, she never gave birth until she died. And so you find then these examples of sincere praise. And in Psalm chapter 9, when it says, I will praise thee, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praises to thy name. Uh, there, is, there is sincere praise that ought to be offered up by God's people. And I would say at this point that there are people that are in the praise and worship arena. Um, that camp that we're not in, I am sure that there are sincere people there that praise the Lord sincerely from the heart. In spite of the fact that a lot of it is a production, a show, and those kind of things, and we would not be a part of that, but we would say honestly there's probably some sincere worshipers of the Lord among those people. I would say there just has to be some sincere worshipers of the Lord. And so in Psalm chapter 9, you have that going on, and you, you realize from this chapter that this praising of the Lord is because of certain things that will happen and have happened in David's life. Look at verse number three. Verse number three. Verses three through eight. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou satest in the throne judging, uh, judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. Verse 8, And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. Now, all of this is not quite in, in the real time of David, although David was very victorious and successful over his enemies, but he could not say totally that the, that the rebuke, the heathen has been rebuked, they have been destroyed, the wicked have been destroyed, verse number five, and verse number three, he could not say that. They all fall and perish at thy presence. He could not say that. But he can say that in prophecy when the Lord comes back. And so you have in these verses a, a throne. Jesus is on the throne. Uh, the kingdom has come. There is this, quote, golden age that will take place on the earth when the Lord returns. Uh, look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Finally, finally, at last, at last Israel can say, the Jew can say, our Messiah has come. At last, our troubles are over. And this is involving the tribulation uh, and up to the point of the tribulation, historically, um, hatred for the Jews, uh, anti-Semitism that's gone on for centuries. Did God help them? It appears that he did not. Did they get relief from Roman oppression? It appears they did not. Did they get relief when they were scattered and taken into captivity? It appears that they did not. And of course, uh, into the tribulation when they cry for help it appears that the Lord did not help them 
But remember that what appears to be may not always be so. And it seems like the Lord just delayed the judgment until he comes to the throne. And so you find here that the Lord does not ignore the workers of iniquity. And we find out that he will not forsake his people. And so the praising of the Lord in this chapter is a little bit deeper than just thank you, Lord, for my salvation or thank you for a victory here and there. It is ultimately when Israel is delivered from persecution, from the world's hatred of them, and the Lord comes back and he sets everything right. And so finally, finally, now I want you to come to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, the question then, does, uh, did God forsake his people? Romans 9, 10, and 11 gives us the answer. But so come to Romans chapter 11 and verse number 26. This one verse gives us a real strong clue that God has not forsaken Israel, even though it seems like her enemies have overcome them, have defeated them for these centuries. But ultimately, the Lord will say, I have not forsaken you because I will deliver you. Look at verse number 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. That hasn't happened yet. All Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion, or Zion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So that one verse gives us a strong clue that God has not forsaken his people Israel. And we can say by devotional thought or by application that the same thing is true with God's people, the church. He has not forsaken his church. He has always been with them and will go with them and go with them and through tribulations and trials, whatever the church goes through, uh, the church will survive and it will continue because the Lord is with the church. Now look at chapter 9 of Psalms again. Chapter 9. And verses 10 through 15. 10 through 15. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all the praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. Now, that will not ultimately take place until in the tribulation, and then, of course, Armageddon, and the Lord reigns from his throne. And so everything is in prospect. And he sees it like that as if it is done. And so look at verse number 16. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executed. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Now, Higion, and then it says Selah. Selah is like saying, think about this. Selah is saying, so what do you think about that? And so for those who may think historically that God has forsaken Israel, that God has forsaken the church, that they would be wrong because we would ultimately say, you see, our God was with us. Our God never has, uh, has failed us. He never leaves us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5. And so you find that to be very true by uh, spiritual application. And so in verses 17, 9, 17 through 20, 9:17 through 20. The wicked shall be turned into hell, 
and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Now, this first chapter, or chapter 9, closes, and he will continue to chapter 10. But the ninth chapter closes with uh, judgment. It closes with destruction of the heathen. And if you look at Revelation chapter 19, you will find that when the Lord comes back, he executes his wrath. He executes judgment on the beast and the false prophet. They cast him to the lake of fire alive. And then the remnants are also destroyed. And so that hasn't happened yet. And so when you think about judgment, you think about righteousness, you think about evil men working and doing what to do, it seems like God has forgotten and has kind of turned his face from what is going on. It's like he doesn't notice these things. But he, the Bible does say that God notices these things. He doesn't ignore the works of wicked men. And ultimately, there will be judgments. And so it just appears to the time. And the time could be centuries. The time could be uh, in our time where wicked men, wicked nations rule and they have control and they're prosperous and they seem to be doing things without any kind of chastisement or punishment. It just seems that way, but it's not like that. What it appears to be is not always so. Man always makes the mistake to think that because God hasn't judged them yet, it doesn't, it means that he will not judge, that's not true. And so the wheels of justice turn, but it turns slowly many times. And so David writes, and in prospect, he's seen Armageddon, he's seen tribulation, Armageddon, he's seen the Lord coming back on his throne, judging righteously, not only judging the world, but judging the world in the kingdom as a righteous judge. So when he reigns, he will reign and rule righteously. And so that's a little bit about chapter 9. And so it's finally over. The Lord has come back. And then, of course, the Lord proves to the world that he is the Lord and that there is judgment for wickedness. And so wicked nations, wicked nations right now still rule, don't they? Uh, it's not over. You can take any current event in our country and you can take any politician in our country or in other countries for that matter. And you can say, how is it that they can continue in their unrighteous works? How can they treat people the way they do? How can they treat their own nation the way that they do and still be alive? Uh, if you've read anything or recently seen any news from uh, about China and Shanghai and how uh, there are protests because of lockdowns and then um, I think Tucker Crossman reported that they sent in tanks and he says no one else reported that and yet they sent in tanks and to stop the protest. Now, um, people, people are starving, people are suffering and yet um, the one in charge of the country seems to have no heart for the people. That can be true for African nations. That can be true for any place in a small pocket where people are just true to other people. They seem to get away with things. <coughs> but according to Psalm chapter 9, it'll come to an end one day. And so the lesson to learn so far is that we don't take vengeance. We don't go out and be vigilantes and try to set things right. Romans 12, 19 says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will recompense. And so we do what we can do, we do what is right to do, do everything within, within our power, everything that's legal, and if nothing changes, then you can rest and say, well, I've done what I could have done. I have voted. 
I knew the issues and I cast my ballot and still the unrighteous reign, still the unrighteous rule, still all these things go on. And so there's a tendency to get really, really mad. And that will be kind of normal because we just feel like as Americans for our country alone, that there should be some justice, some honesty, and some obeying of the law. And when it doesn't appear to happen, we get very upset. I wouldn't say it's wrong to be upset, but I will go and say that it's wrong to be upset to the point of trying to do things in the wrong way to fix it. And so Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine. Let the Lord take care of things. Just be responsible. Now in chapter 10, I did say that these two chapters are connected. And so in chapter 10, David continues with some prophecies about the future, and it's so tied to his rule as a king. In chapter 10, verse number 1, Why standest thou far off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. So David sounds as if he's upset. He sounds as if he can't believe that the wicked still are alive and that they may even prosper and that they're able to overcome people. And the wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. And he's crying, why, verse one, why standest thou far off, O Lord? It appears that God isn't doing anything. It appears God is silent. And once again, just because it appears God is silent does not mean that God is silent and he does not see. It appears he's far off, but he's not far off. It just appears that way. Look at verse number three. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blessed, blessed the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. And now David says, why? Even those who are an offense to God, they still survive, they still prosper. How is that possible? David thinks. The wicked bless the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. Verse 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Well, why would he not seek God in the wicked? Why would the wicked in David's time, why would the wicked looking down into the future from David's time, do people, nations, why do they not seek the Lord? Well, the answer is kind of obvious. It's because if you have the power and if you have military behind you, why would you want to give that up? You keep holding on to your power and you keep control over your country or your people. And so why would you seek God? Because if you sought the Lord, you might have to humble yourself. You may have to learn to be gentle toward all men. You would have to learn to be righteous in your rule. And that they would never do because that would mean giving up their power. And once a man takes power and has authority and he has to say so, then of course it's very hard for men to give that up. And that's just the way human nature is. And so in verse number five, his ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. Folks, it's just us. Go ahead, keep rattling your swords. Don't bother me. I'm not afraid of you. Arrogance. Verse 6. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved. You see the confidence that he has in his mind and in his heart? I shall not be moved. Go ahead, attack us. Our nations, we got a great air force, we got a navy, 
We have an arm. We got everything to repel any kind of attack. They feel very confident about this. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. Remember the Bible verse in Proverbs, that him that thinketh he standeth to he lest he fall. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, all the great kings, uh, they all fell. Verse 7, his mouth is full of cursing. The one who is uh, prideful, I shall never be in adversity. His mouth, verse 7, is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Well, that is so contemporary, isn't it? That is so today. That is so up to speed, up to date. That fits any generation where people who have control and have authority, they have all this power. Nobody can say anything and uh, oppose them because they have all the power. They have the control. The man feels very confident once again and he feels like he can lie and cheat, deceive, defraud people. His mouth is full of cursing, deceit and fraud. Verse 8, he sitteth in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. So trickery, deception, and then of course there's death in the end. Verse 10, he's like an animal, isn't he, this prideful man? He's like a lion that crouches and ready to spring upon his prey. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten, he hideth his face, he will never see him. Well, that's what the, the man in power thinks, the ungodly man thinks. God will never see it. And of course, we know better from what the Bible says. God does see, God does know, God does hear the cry of the people, and he will deliver specifically Israel, and by extension, the church, and by another extension, stretching it, people in general, where God will, will take vengeance at the right time. But in the meantime, he does seem far off, but really he's not. He's right there. And so look at verse number 12. Verse number 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thy hand, forget not the humble. So there is an appeal to God for justice. There's an appeal for God, to God for executing the unrighteous so that the righteous and the humble and the regular folk can live a life of honesty and just mind their own business. What a horrible existence when you have no say-so and you live under an oppressive government. You can't move about freely. You can't shop freely. You can't work your own fields. You can't have your own power. All of these things is because of the ungodly man and he thinks God has hit his face and he thinks God does not see. So verse 12, he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand. Do something about it, Lord. God, step in. Don't let us go on. Do something about this. Forget not the humble. Verse 13. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. You see the arrogance here? God is not going to do anything about this. Now look at chapter 11 and verse number 4. Put a note here in my Bible. Verse number 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. 
his eyes behold his eyelids try the children of men the Lord trieth the righteous verse 5 but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hated upon the wicked he shall rain snares fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest this shall be the portion of their cup for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness his confidence doth behold the upright so from the Bible you realize that though they seem to get away with it they will not get away with anything they will be judged and they'll be punished the Lord is in heaven and his eyes behold remember that whenever you feel like oh oh no not again they're gonna pass this law are you serious and you think how incredibly wrong it is for example I think it was mentioned tonight about the Senate has agreed to pass this measure. It's about uh, protecting marriage and so on. It's about protecting same-sex marriage in other states where it can be recognized and must be recognized. So if same-sex marriage is recognized, say, in uh, Maryland, and that couple goes to Tennessee, then their marriage certificate must be recognized. And some of the Republicans that voted for this said, well, this is good, you know? And well, it, it seems to be good to recognize that type of uh, a marriage but remember things are incremental things happen in degrees and uh, the, the, the frog was cooked not in boiling water but in lukewarm water at first and then temperatures turn up and pretty soon he got boiled in hot water but he got in there comfortably and it's a slow process but it's an evil process and how could people how could people do wicked things and that's just an example. There's many more things that people have done that's so wicked, and even today. And uh, so wicked that it shouldn't have been mentioned even in church. But the Lord sees from his throne in heaven, verse 14, 10, 14, thou hast seen it. So thou beholdest mischief in spite. Now, verse 15, David is upset. <laughs> you know why David's upset? Because David is a man who is a soldier, a warrior, a fighter. He has passion. And when he challenges his passion the right way, he is courageous. When his passions were out of control, he was dangerous and he was wrong. When his passions were in the right direction, he had righteous indignation. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Why break his arm? So he cannot do anything wrong. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. Eliminate all of them. Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Now, when the Lord is on his throne and Armageddon is over, the millennium, the millennial kingdom is established and he's reigning from his throne from Jerusalem and the heathen will be perished. Now, in the kingdom, people will have to obey the law of the land because there's a king on earth on the throne and he will rule with a rod of iron and you, you're going to have, after a thousand years, babies born, they grow up to be adults and a lot of them are going to be unbelievers. That is the fact. But still, he will rule. He will rule with a rod of iron and he will take care of all unrighteousness. It will be safe in the kingdom. There will be no persecution. 
There will be no unrighteousness. There will be no unfairness because he will rule righteously and uprightly. And there will be no real, real complaining about the government because Jesus is the government. And so verse number 18, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may no more oppress. That would be a good day when that happens. But it hasn't happened yet. In the meantime, you have to endure to the end, so to speak, and do what's responsible as American Christians and not let things get to you to the place where you hate those who are transgressors. You have to be careful about that. And remember, um, not being passive, but being responsible, do what you should. And just remember that Romans 12, 19 is in the Bible still. In fact, let us take a good look at that verse, Romans 12, 19. I referred to it, but let's take a good look at it. Oh, it's so unfair. Oh, why do they keep doing that? And how come they keep getting away with that? That is so wrong. And yet, they still seem to prosper. Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Don't make things right. Even though you are right, and even though something was wrong, somebody is wrong, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, if the Lord will repay, you don't have to repay. If he punishes, you don't have to punish. If you do verse 20, when you can, and if you feel led to do verse 20, it would be a good thing. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, who is the enemy? The one who is wrong, treating you wrong, doing wrong, defrauding you. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. What? What does all that mean? There could be some cultural explanation for verse number 20. In which when a man's coals went out, which of course be very serious in the wintertime, then you bring coals of fire upon your head in a basket of some sort. Be sure you have a pad there to protect your bald head. And you carry that basket of coals to this fireplace and you give it to him. Thus he is able to have heat for his home. You've done a benevolent thing to a man who's not benevolent to you. He is stunned by your kindness to him when he was so unkind to you. For in so doing, thou shalt eat coals of fire on his head. And that is one way to explain that. But another way to explain that, that coals of fire upon his head, it seems to be that you have brought conviction to him because you're nice to him who is not nice to you. That's a very difficult thing to do. Um, my wife and I saw uh, a Christian short for about 30 minutes. It was about Christmas time, a toy shop owner, small shop. And then another guy comes into town. He's arrogant, he's cocky. He's going to destroy another man's business competition. And so he opens up a big toy shop, three times the size of this man's toy shop, and he's going to take away all of his business. He walks up to this Christian guy, and he says, don't you know? And he says, I'm going to open this shop right over here. And so I'm going to take away all of your business. And this man has to shake, uh, extend his arm to shake his hand. 
Instead of that, he says, I'm gonna take all the business from you. And so the man has to close his shop, I thought, because everybody's going to this guy's shop. He's got a big inventory of toys. This guy is not having any customers. He has to close his shop. Christian man. This guy, unchristian man, he is prospering. This man uh, wants to have the toy business again, but he can't do it now because no one's shopping at his store. They're all going to the new guy in town, the arrogant, mean, nasty man. Well, the story goes on that uh, the man, the Christian guy, was watching something and he got an idea to invent some, a toy. Well, because he got this invention idea, he began to develop this toy, was and then he presented his idea to a big toy making company. And they liked the idea. They began to produce his toy. His toy made him a lot of money. Soon he had enough money to open up another toy shop. And then he sold that one toy that he developed, he created, he owned. And he began to sell a lot of those toys plus other toys in his shop. He began to get prosperous again. They let all the customers went from his shop to this guy's shop, began to go back to this guy's shop. His little shop became expanded. And he had all kinds of profit, all kinds of loyal customers. This guy began to have problems. And he had a meeting with his board, says, uh, we can't do this, We're gonna, we need $20,000 to survive. You know what the man did? This man found out from a customer that he needed $200,000. And he told his wife, I should give him the money. His wife says, what? No, no, after he's been so mean to you, no. And so he prayed about it, he, he was responsible, and he says, we can do that. We can give him the money. So he did, anonymously. So he got a letter with a cashier's check, and somehow in the story, which I don't get, is that it was an anonymous check signature. I don't know how you give a check without your signature. So he went to his bank, verified it's a real check, it saved his business. Here's the funny part. It saved his business. When he found out who gave it to him, he said, why did you do this for me? After how I treated you, he says, look, the more important thing is, I want you to know the Lord as I know the Lord. I did it I did it because God has forgiven me and I forgive you. I have no bad feelings against you. And, and this man was overcome by his generosity, his kindness. He, he closed the fire upon his head. It so convicted him that he did not treat him like, like, like he treated him. And eventually, the man got saved and eventually he became an employee of this guy. <laughs> it's really kind of funny. But uh, that made the point about verse number 20. And uh, verse number 21 is the point, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So however that can be applied, it can be applied. In the case of vengeance, don't seek it. Let God have his way and do what you can that's right to do. And perhaps that might cause someone to turn and understand that they were wrong and that they should be forgiven. Uh, ask for your forgiveness and so on. So that's chapter nine and 10 of Psalms. Look into the future. Answer that question, has God forsaken his people? No. Does God ignore the works of the wicked? The answer again is no. And so, how do we deal with people who are wicked? Well, you have to treat them with respect. And you do have to sometimes fight fire with fire, but you still have to be respectful in all that you do to combat any kind of evil. And of course, I'm thinking about politics and how Christians and politicians be firm and gentlemanly not give ground and still uh, fight for what is right politically in the arena of um, responsibility. But ultimately, God has to change people's hearts. The hand, the, 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 the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. That is always true. 
And then vengeance is mine. Remember, I will repay, said the Lord. And so you never want to hurt people just because they've wronged you. And you want them to do right. You want them to do right. And the Lord can help them to do right. All right. Father, we thank you for the time in these two chapters. And we pray that the lesson you can you should get from it is to let you take care of things. While we are responsible to take care of things that we can't take care of, you have to ultimately take care of matters. And our mind, our mind goes to uh, government. It goes to politics. Our mind goes to uh, things of this world in which there seems to be no restraint. There seems to be no pulling back on the reins. Everything is going at full speed. And yet, you, you see from heaven, you know, and you will take action. And so it is not our job to destroy people's lives because we disagree with them. It is our job to trust you and to pray and to be responsible as American citizens. And so we do pray that you would have mercy in our country. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.